Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, we are in chapter 2 of Hosea. And if you were not here, if you weren't here last week, uh, that's cool, I guess. I don't know where you were, but uh, whatever. You know, but it is good to be here this week. Last week, we began to look at the book of Hosea. Um, and so many of us that were here last week, we were sort of, you know, we, we learned a little bit about what the book's talking about. If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea and you're jumping in today, you're thinking, what are we talking about here? Uh, but the, the basic storyline is this. It goes back to chapter 1, verse 2. You can see it there that Hosea, this prophet, was told to go to take a wife either who was involved in prostitution or who would become involved in prostitution, and that that wife would serve as a picture of the the children of Israel's relationship with God. In the way that she would go astray and be unfaithful to her husband, that's what the children of Israel did. And so in chapter 1-2 it said, Now when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits and forsakes Uh, me, it goes on to say, or something to that effect. And again, as I said, there is some discussion as to whether Hosea was already a prostitute, and Hosea married her nonetheless, excuse me, Gomer was already a prostitute, and Hosea married her nonetheless, or that she would go on to become a prostitute later on in their marriage and break her vow. But one way or another, she was going to do that, and Hosea knew that his wife was going to be unfaithful to him. Now, chapter 1 seems to elude, allude to that. Chapter 2 is very, very clear that that is exactly what she is doing. She is going after her lovers. And so I want to read the opening set of verses to this chapter, uh, the first 13. Follow along with me. It says, Now say to your brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, You are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Verse 6, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I'll return and go to my first husband. It was better for me then than now. But she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. It was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which she turned out to use for bail. Therefore, I'll take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. And I will punish her 
for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Heavy words certainly there uh, in the scenario. And I think any of us, we could really put ourselves into the place of a Hosea, to have a spouse of some sorts, whether we've been married or not, uh, to have a spouse that would go astray and to know the pain of that particular feeling. And that's what God would have his servant Hosea go through so that it would picture, this is what I go through as the nation runs after its false gods. Not one time, not two times, but gives themselves to their false gods. Now, as I said in uh, just a moment ago, I believe, chapter one seems to give the impression that she's already gone astray. And we pointed this out. If you look at chapter one, verse three, notice when there's that birth announcement there, it says that she conceived and bore uh, him a son, meaning Hosea, that she and Hosea conceived and bore a son. But then you look at verse six and you look, look at verse eight, and it says she conceived and bore a daughter. She conceived and bore a son. And no mention is made there of Hosea. Add to that the fact that the kid's name is not mine, uh, not my people. And it, it seems to be indicating pretty clearly that this is not Hosea's child, neither of them, that she's gone astray with the second and third child and even beyond that. Now, that seems to be implicated in chapter one. Chapter two really gets down to it. And in chapter 2, we see she has gone in the way of harlotry or of whoredom. Look at verse uh, 2, actually, uh, here. We have, it says, plead with your mother. She's not my wife. Like, we're not living as husband and wife. She put a, tell her to put away her whoring from her face. No more implication any longer. This is the direction that she has gone in, our life, in her life. And again, the whole purpose of this is as a drama, as a pageant, to dramatically depict the relationship that Jewish people had with their foreign gods when they would run astray from their husband, the Lord, and go after their foreign lovers, their foreign deities, and so on and so forth. Well, Hosea's life is going to be this pageant. Now, I want to give you, and again, don't forget that, because I, I found it very hard to, to keep studying this this week, because at one point I'd be kind of looking at Hosea and Gomer and thinking about that relationship. And then other points I would be thinking about the Lord and his relationship with his children. And I kept like forgetting, like, what's the storyline I'm considering? Well, we're looking at this example of Hosea and Gomer, but it's all speaking of the relationship between Israel and its people. And so sometimes I'm going to say, and she did this, and, or, or he'll, he did this. And other times I'll say, the Lord did this. And I kept getting myself almost tongue-tied or brain-tied uh, in this process here. So hang with me. But remember, it's all a picture. Now, I want to read to you. This is from 2 Kings. I think we'll put it up on the screen. This is a picture of Israel's going astray. 2 Kings begins this way, chapter 17. It says, they, Israel, they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been stubborn, who would not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant. They made that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and they became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Verse 16, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah, and that, which is like a pole that they would 
do their worship around. And they worshiped all the host of heaven and they served Baal, which was a foreign god. Verse 17, now catch verse 17, because this was one of the means by which they worshiped the Baal. It says, and they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and they used divination and omens and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking them to anger. Therefore, he was very angry with them. Now, that particular reference there, what they would do is they had a deity that was like an iron uh, statue of sorts. And the deity would be seated, and the deity would have his hands out like this. It would be made of iron, and they would heat it up with fire. And then they would take their children. Typically, what they would do is they had their temple prostitutes to these false gods, and those prostitutes would conceive, but those babies would be considered unwanted babies. And then they would take those babies and they would place them onto the hands of their little deity that was seated there with the fire around it. And as the baby would be screaming from the fire that was destroying its life, the people would chant louder and louder and louder and louder as they danced around this thing. These are children of Israel doing this. No wonder the Lord is angry with them. And the Lord says, in the same way that Hosea runs astray, excuse me, Gomer runs astray with Hosea, my people go astray. And they go after these things, and they do things that don't even come into my mind that somebody should do. That's the background of what the children of Israel are doing. And I think it's important for us to keep reminding ourselves of that background so that we don't get lost in the picture of Hosea and Gomer and we forget what the Lord's really trying to point out, that the children of Israel have gone astray. Now the chapter begins, we read it already, but Hosea is giving someone instructions in chapter 2 verse 1. It doesn't tell us who it is, but we can figure out who it is because we're all very smart. All right, and so he says this, it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, if you're reading the King James, you're reading the New American Standard, it, it transliterates the name. It's, it's how we would pronounce it in English, the Hebrew name. So in those older versions, it says, Say to your brothers, Ami. Say to your sisters, Ruhamah. And if you were with us last week, you remember back in chapter 1 that there were three children that Gomer gave birth to. All right, The first is a kid named Jezreel. That's the child of Gomer and Hosea. The second was a little girl uh, whose name was Lo-Ami. And then the third was a little boy whose name was Lo-Ruhamah. And again, in chapter 2 here, particularly in those older versions, we see Ami and Ruhamah. That little word lo there, it negates everything that comes after it. Much like we have the letter A in our language, like we have a theist, they believe in God. An atheist does not believe in God. The A negates everything that follows it. Well, that lo negates everything that follows it. And so if Ami means my people, lo Ami means not my people. Very good. No. All right, excellent. And if uh, Ruhamah means mercy, lo Ruhamah would mean no mercy. And so if somebody's supposed to speak to their brother and their sister, mercy and, not, and my people, well, then that somebody has to be Jezreel. And so Jezreel, uh, excuse me, Hosea tells his firstborn son, Jezreel, Jezreel, I want you to go and speak to your sister. I want you to go and speak uh, to your brother. He'll tell him in verse 3 there, go talk to your mom as well. Or verse 2, he says, go talk to your mom. 
And so let's put all the pieces here. Hosea plays the part of whom? God. Okay, Gomer plays the part of the unfaithful nation of Israel. And then Jezreel, Ami, and Ruhamah, they're going to play the individual people of the nation of Israel. All right, and so everybody has sort of their part. If we wanted to get even more specific, you might consider Jezreel to be the faithful remnant of the people of Israel that don't go astray. And so then the instructions would be this, for the faithful remnant, or maybe that faithful one, to go and speak to those that are straying and speak these particular words here. And so Jezreel's supposed to go to his brother and his sister, my people, uh, and say to them, you are my people. Remember, their name was not my people. To say to his sister or brother, I get it mixed up, but no mercy, to say you have received mercy. And he's supposed to go to them and essentially say, you will be restored. So it begins at that place. Then as you go through the rest of it, does it seem like they're restored? No, we read that. It doesn't seem like that at all. But we stopped at verse 13. When you go to verse 14 again, then the restoration happens. And so it's essentially like, it's like, this is what's going to happen. Let me give you the details. And then you finally get to that thing they begin with. Does that make sense? I hope so. I get confused reading this as well, so you're probably confused listening to me try to explain that which is confusing me. But it starts where it's going to finish, and then the details there are in the middle. And so he's supposed to go to these people. Now look at verse 2. In verse 2, the second person or group of people, if you will, that he's going to go to is his mom. So Hosea says, plead with your mother. Plead. For she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. The idea being we're not living as a married couple. She's with somebody else now. He says, plead with her. And then notice it says that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast. And Hosea had been told that this day was coming and the Lord revealed it to him. And now the day had come, but I'm sure we can all imagine that wouldn't make this day any easier at all, would it? And the heartbreak and the pain. Now we have seen already his wife had been unfaithful to him. And that's where that second child was conceived. But he forgave her. And he took her back in. And she was unfaithful again. And conceives a third child now. But he forgives her again. Here now she has fully gone into being a prostitute. And she's abandoned her kids. She's abandoned her husband. She's living with somebody else now. Uh, and she's had given herself over, as it says in verse 5. She says, I'll go after my lovers, plural. And she's gone astray. And I, I can imagine each of us, if we found ourselves in a circumstance like this, we might be able to bring ourselves to forgive our spouse the first time and perhaps the second time. But the third time and a lifestyle of unfaithfulness and adultery... I think many of us would say, you know what, I've come to the end and I don't have any more mercy for you. And you've decided and that decision will be solidified. But as we go back to the relationship with the Lord and what this is supposed to picture, notice the Lord does not give up. And as we see in our passage, it's going to seem like, well, the Lord has had enough. But I'm going to take you through this. The Lord hasn't had enough. And that restoration that I mentioned in verse 1 which is going to be talked about in full, starting in verse 14, the Lord says, we're going to restore this relationship. 
one way or another, the title of our sermon is by any means necessary, one way or another, we're going to restore this relationship. And it's going to be a glorious relationship at some point in time. So let's continue to make our way through again. Verse uh, 2, plead with your mother. As I said there, look at verse 3. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. And as you look there, you see the consequences get greater and greater and greater and greater as the paragraph continues to move on. And through the pageant of this man's life, God is going to warn Israel, look, if she will not put, her way, put away her unfaithful ways, the one who has already partially exposed herself, she bore her breast, was going to be completely laid bare. As it says in verse 3, she would be stripped naked. And Jezreel, representing the faithful nation, he was supposed to go, the nation was supposed to go and plead with those children of Israel that had gone after their idolatry, that had run after their false gods. Now this pattern I want us to take notice of, and this is the main point of our message this morning, this is the pattern in which the Lord works with his people. It's the pattern in which he works with every one of us. And he's done it many, many times in my life as well over the years as I've sought to follow him. The Lord is gracious and he seeks to teach us and our job is to learn. There you go. All right, don't do that. All right, got it. And then we don't do it. But if we decide, well, you know what, Lord, I really want to do that, then the Lord warns us. And if we don't listen to the warning, then the Lord allows us to feel a little bit of pain. And if that little pain doesn't wake us up, he allows us to feel a little bit more pain and a little more and a little more until finally we come to our senses. And what's the end result when we come to our senses? We've learned the lesson. That's what God wanted to do in the very beginning by just simply teaching us that we might learn the lesson. But one way or another, the Lord's going to teach us the lesson. We have the ability, if you will, to save ourselves from a whole lot of pain. And so Hosea says to his mom or to his son, go tell your mom, plead with her, essentially that she might be spared the coming judgment. Somebody has said, the Lord makes sin to serve. And by that, what they meant is the consequences of sin, the Lord can use to accomplish his purposes. I don't think it's his preferred means to accomplish his purposes, but he'll use whatever means necessary to grow us uh, and to keep us in the, the way he would have us to go. And so the Lord will go to plan B. And if his people won't be taught by warning and admonition, he'll teach his people through the consequences of sin. But his objective is that we would learn. Now back to Israel. Israel forsook their gods. And because they wouldn't repent, and despite his repeated warnings, he was going to have to give Israel up to those idols. Ultimately, that comes in 722 B.C., as we mentioned, with the Assyrian captivity. And we'll work toward that. Let's pick, pick up in verse 5. Their mother has played the whore. She's conceived that, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Now, we may not be that impressed by bread and water and flax and oil and things like that, but those things were considered, if you will, uh, increasingly some of the luxuries of life. And it was those things that allured Gomer to be unfaithful to her husband 
and to run after those things. As it says again in the verse, to run after her lovers because she erroneously concluded that her lovers were providing her with her bread and her water and her oil and her flax and her wool and all of those other things. How, what a shame. What a shame that Gomer came to treasure those temporal pleasures over the pure and faithful love that her husband had repeatedly and was willing to show her. And again, she says, I'll go after my lovers. Notice that plural. It's not like one other guy somewhere won her heart. She would just run after any guy that could provide her little gifts. And she justified her harlotry based on the things that she thought her harlotry was bringing her. How many Christian business people will sacrifice their integrity for just a little bit of something they think that they can gain by sacrificing that integrity? And they'll sacrifice their relationship with Christ in that issue. They'll willingly go into sin because of the little treats they think that they can get from doing so. And here she looks at all the good she seems to be getting from her sin, and she decides it is far better than remaining true to her first love. But what she doesn't know, and what Israel didn't understand, is that sin always feels good for a season. Like, let's be honest. I think sometimes we try to trick our kids into thinking, you know, sin is horrible. You, you, don't, want, you don't want to get into sin. It feels icky or whatever. And the kids like me talking about You know what I mean? Like, no, it doesn't. When I do that thing, I steal that thing, and so on and so forth. It feels wonderful. It it feels good for a season. And Gomer hadn't realized that. The nation hadn't realized that. But the passing pleasures of sin, the book of Hebrews calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin. They're just there for a moment. And then you've got to run after the next thing and after the next thing. And eventually they come up empty. What she also doesn't understand, this was something I found to be interesting, verse 8 I think gives insight on this, is that the grain, the wine, the oil, all, all those other things, she presumed they came her way as a result of her harlotry. Verse 8 seems to indicate they actually were provided by Hosea himself. The scenario, let me read it, verse 8, it says, she did not know that I, it was I who gave her the grain the wine, the oil, and all of those other things. I read a commentary this week, James Montgomery Boyce. He's no longer with us. He's in heaven, but he was a uh, wonderful preacher and writer down in the Philadelphia area in the 1960s, 1970s, probably even later than that. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I first became the no, first knew the Lord, we used to go feed the homeless down in Philly out of 10th Presbyterian Church where James Montgomery Boyce uh, had served for so many years. Some of you that like older commentators Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was out of that fellowship as well. Man, they're turning out some preachers at that church and some wonderful Bible commentators there. Even now, Paul Tripp is there, who's a wonderful Bible teacher that some of you are familiar with. Anyhow, James Montgomery Boyce, I thought he did a super job here unpacking this particular passage. And he, he uses, if you will, heavenly imagination. There was an old Bible teacher we heard, uh, my wife and I, again, we like to just sit and listen to Bible teachers. Um, Stuart Briscoe, I believe it was. And, and Stuart's wife is a wonderful Bible teacher herself. She's going to be at Calvary Old Bridge in a few weeks, actually, uh, doing a women's conference there. And she used to say she liked to uh, look around the corner with heavenly imagination as she'd read a passage, you know, try to imagine, like, what, what would that have been like if I had I lived there? And, and what Stuart said, you can look around the corner. Just don't go wandering down the street. 
you know, or something like that. And so I think heavenly imagination is really good. You know, you just sort of like, what would that have been like had I been there? What, what would it have felt like, looked like, and, and so on and so forth. But you can go obviously too far and make the text say something it doesn't actually say. Well, Boyce, I think with some heavenly imagination, he unpacks this story. And he, he paints this scenario where Gomer had sank lower and lower and lower in the social strata of society. And so that perhaps initially she went astray and there was this rich guy who uh, was enticing her and providing her with all of her things. And he got tired of her eventually. And then there's some other guy and some other guy. And pretty soon she finds herself in a circumstance where the guy that she is with can't even provide her most basic needs. And here's where Boyce's imagination sort of kicks in. He, he says, I imagine that the Lord must have spoken to Hosea. And he said to Hosea, Hosea, do you know that your wife is living in the poorest area of the city and that she's living with a man who was not even able to take care of her? And God said, I want you to go down to the marketplace. I want you to buy some food and the clothing that she needs. And I want you to see that she gets it. Because that's the way that I deal with my children. What a picture of God's great mercy and his love. Would you do that? No. Come on. <laughs> Just write it down. No, you wouldn't do it. None of us would do that. Naturally, unless the Lord really laid something on our hearts. And then he gives it to her. Again, according to... If you look at verse 8, this is where Boyce comes to this. He gives it to her, and her lover takes all the credit for providing it. And there is Hosea out, you know, in the bushes or something, just thinking like, really? And he turns and goes home, but he knows that his wife has been provided for. And at least that evening she'll be clothed properly, and she'll have some food in her stomach. And again, the picture is that's how the Lord deals with his children. I see it as an incredible slap in the face uh, to Hosea and certainly here to the Lord. The Lord provides for Israel. He tried to teach them, but they wouldn't listen. He extended his forgiveness. He extended his mercy, but they wouldn't turn. He lavishes his grace upon them, like that scenario that I just gave to you, and it doesn't lead them to the place of repentance. And so what should the Lord do next? What's the next course of action? Look at verse 6. He says, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I'll build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. The next step the Lord's determination, I'm going to teach this lady or this nation. I'm going to teach them. And his next step then is uh, the first of, as we see in our passage, three therefores. So look at the beginning of verse 6. It says, you see there, it says therefore. Look down to verse 9. It says again, therefore. And then you look down at verse 14, which we didn't read today. That'll be the third therefore. And each one of those therefores essentially are successive steps that Hosea is taking with his wife Gomer or the Lord is taking with his children Israel here and again that's the way that the Lord works if the first way doesn't work he'll go to the second way which is a little more painful and then the third and then the fourth and then the fifth and so on and so forth and so let's look at these the first one the first therefore is he places a hedge of thorns a hedge of thorns now that means there's freedom 
inside of the hedge, and if you want to think of that as a place where you reside or a pathway and the sides of your pathway uh, are hedged up with thorns, there's freedom in the middle. But if you begin to go straying to this side or that side, you want to see what's on the other side of the thorns. You want to see if maybe you can you know, sneak through the thorn bushes and get to the other side of those things. What's going to happen when you get close to those bushes? You're going to get pricked by the thorns, and it's going to hurt. That's so mean of the Lord, is it? The Lord puts that little bit of pain there on purpose. Now, many times, how does the Lord do this? Many times the Lord does this in the lives of children by giving them parents that care enough about them to put consequences in their lives. And a lot of our Christian kids, and we pray this too. My wife and I prayed this many times. We prayed that our kids would get caught in things that they would do, that they would just be bad at those things. And then they would get caught and they'd be thinking, every time I do that, I get in trouble. That's a hedge of thorns. So that that trouble would be like, you know what, I don't want to get trouble anymore, uh, in trouble anymore. I'm not going down that particular path. Some kids, and I've heard Christian kids say this thing, not mine, uh, but others, and mine might have said it, but they didn't say it to me. But some Christian kids, they begin to resent their parents for the hedge of thorns, not knowing that the hedge is for their good. And God, this isn't fair. I always get in trouble, and so on and so forth. That's right, you do. I love you. Because he loves them, and he loves us. A hedge of thorns. You get too close, you're going to get pricked here. And again, that's God's mercy. The pain is God's mercy. And so you cheat on your taxes one time. Never did it before. It's just this tiny little thing. And somehow, you're the one who gets caught. Somebody else is stealing millions of dollars on their taxes, and you listed one little thing that is like $100 or something, and you're the one who gets caught. That's God's mercy. You're probably not going to go to jail for that. That's God's mercy that you got caught now and not when you cheated a million bucks and you had to end up in jail. And it's an expression of God's love. He'll place a hedge around his people to protect us from those things that are out there. And I think this is important, to protect us from ourselves. Because oftentimes I want to go on the other side of that hedge. And he protects us from ourselves because I'm a wimp and the thorn hurts. And that's it. I'll stay here. I don't need to go over there. Now, the hedge, of, the hedge it'll hinder, but it does not prevent. I remember we were young. Now that's a housing development, but I grew up not too far from here, and it used to just be sort of this woods. It was like basically an old farm that the farmers had abandoned. And so there was lots of prickle bushes and all this sort of stuff that was there. And we were basically playing hide-and-seek near that area. Well, the people came after us, and you go running to that. And now when you're crawling on the ground and you hit it, no big deal. You're like, ooh, aye, and you pull back. But now people are chasing you, and they're going to kill you. It's hide-and-seek, all right? And this is serious. You just go running right through those things, and you deal with the pain later on when you get on the other side. The hedge will hinder but if you want to break through, you can break through. And so if the, the teaching didn't work and then the warning didn't work and the hedge of thorns didn't work, then the Lord will go to the next step. Plan D, I guess we are on now. He'll go to that if necessary. Look at verse 7. It says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. And then she, sh- she shall say, That's hard to... <laughs> Then she shall say, I feel like that Brady Bunch episode, uh, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then 
than now. And what's this step here? The Lord allows our pursuits to fail. It seems mean also, is it? doesn't it? It's not. It's his mercy. And so we go running after this thing, and I'll, I'll find what I want when I get there. And we get there, and we don't find what we want. Or we never actually obtain that which we're running so hard to get. And it's not mean of the Lord at all to not allow us to have those things that are going to be so destructive to our souls anyway. It's God's mercy once more. And he allows those things to become vain pursuits in our lives. That even if we do acquire them, they come up empty. They come up unfulfilling to us. Think, if you will, of King Solomon. I know a lot of us here are familiar with the life of King Solomon. King Solomon, raised by his father and raised by his mother, uh, certainly circumstances not great in, in that he was conceived. But those two people, and as you look at David, they knew the Lord. They began to invest these things into his life. Solomon talks about it in certain the Proverbs and other places. But as Solomon became an adult, Solomon began to run astray. And he began to go after his foreign lovers. And he accumulated them to himself, all of these women and all of the gods that these women had and so on and so forth. And we read in the book of Ecclesiastes of the vanity of those pursuits. And I'm sure you've read the book or many of you have thought about reading the book. Well, it's a good book, all right? And in there, you just see he's going after this, going after that. I I wanted money, I went after my money. I wanted after pleasure, I went after my pleasure. I wanted wisdom, I went after learning. And he goes after all these things and his conclusion is given to us a bunch of times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's one example. It says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. And it was a striving after the wind. Try to grab the wind and hold it in your hand. You can't. It was all a waste, he says, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun from those things. That's one of God's means of bringing his children back to himself. Go chase your lovers. Pursue your wealth, your success, your fame, your popularity, your pleasure. Pursue those things. And you you go after those things. Maybe you start to get some of those things, and you realize, I'm still not satisfied. That's the Lord's mercy. And notice here, in this method of operation, he allows the hedge, that didn't work. He allows the pursuit to come up empty. And it says in verse 7 there that she does not overtake them. And even if she does, they're not going to bring her the joy that she thought they would bring. And I think it's helpful for us to just camp here for a second because that's what we do. We run after thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. It's going to be pleasure. It's going to be sports. It's going to be this team. It's going to be this thing and that thing. I'll pour myself into my kids. If I can just get that husband, we get that husband, we get that wife. Great. Now, if I can just get those kids and we get those kids. Now, if I can just get that house where we can raise those kids and the fence out front. Now, if I can just get that promotion. Now, if I can just get that vacation house. Now, if I can, and we just go after the next thing and next thing and next thing. And then we come to the end of our lives and we're still chasing. And the Lord would have us to grasp these things the right way from the very beginning. Him. And those things all come up short. It's like the the old U2 song. Now, I think U2 still plays, right? 
They're still out there. Bob, you still go to their concerts. I've seen you. Uh, or whatever. I think they're still around, you two doing their thing, but they were pretty big a long, long time ago. And there was a particular song that I still remember. And, and I went and looked up the lyrics to it again and fond memories from the 80s and things like that came flooding back in. But the song is that I still, we still haven't found what we're looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And the whole song is I went after this, I went after that, I went after this, I went after that. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think that could be found or put on the vast majority of people's tombstones here on the earth. I ran after all of these things. It's all just details, and I still didn't find what I was looking for. Those of us that are in Christ Jesus, we found what we were looking for. God did a work in my heart, a, a sweet work. I was 16 years old, and he, he began to cause me to be empty. And I had a pretty good childhood, quite frankly. I was a pretty cool kid. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, I had a fine childhood, America provided for, all these kinds of things. And God just began to open my heart in that instance to my need. And that all those things were coming up short. And I, that I began to search and I began to search and I began to search. And plugging things in, does that feel? Nope, that doesn't. And then finally, the Lord opened up my heart to himself. And in that second, it all flooded in, this is what I was searching for all along. And it's the Lord's mercies that our pursuits come up short. That's his design. They're always meant to come up short so that we might stop, not stop looking for him. Make sense? Verse 6, notice what it says, I should say, in verse 7. That's what seems to happen in her life. It says, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. All the pursuits came up empty leading her to say, I'm going to go back to my husband. It was better for me then than now. Sounds a lot like the prodigal son, doesn't, doesn't it? That's a story that's found in the book of Luke in the New Testament where it's just a story, but we, we could all relate with it, where a guy says, I want, Dad, give me the inheritance. You're not dead yet, but you know, you're taking too long. You know, give me the inheritance that you were going to give me because I just want to live it up. And he takes that money, that half of the inheritance, and he goes and he spends it all, it says, on riotous living. All his friends, everyone, I'll buy drinks. Yeah, everyone loves him. Then he runs out of money. Nobody's around. He can't even buy enough for food. And he finds himself working at a pigsty, you know, just slopping up after the pigs. And I, and I worked a pigsty, like I literally did. That is disgusting. It is awful. I don't know if you've ever seen the food that pigs eat. It is atrocious. And it, that, he looks at that and he, he begins to think that that looks pretty yummy. And then he says, what am I doing? I should go back to my dad's house. The, the slaves that worked for my dad ate better than these pigs that I'm dying to have some of their slop. And so he returns, and, and it's the same story here. She says, look, I'll go, I'll return to my first husband. It was better for me then. What has happened to the pleasures of sin? They passed away. Just as the scripture says, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Slide down to verse 9 for a moment. Notice it says, I'll take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And so verse 9 begins with the second therefore, where the Lord has to take it another step further. When her pursuits came up short, she said, I'll return to my husband. It doesn't seem, however, that she actually did return to her husband. And I think a lot of us have been there as well. When we're going through the difficulties, 
will cry out to God, God, I'll never do this again. I'm so sorry. You know, Lord, I'm going to change my ways starting tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and maybe we change our ways a little bit or the feeling sort of fades away and we just get right back into what we were doing previously. We're the same person that we were before. It seems that's what happened here, that her decision to repent was forgotten. She said she would return, but she didn't actually return. John the Baptist told his disciples, well, actually, they weren't his disciples. He told people that had come to him, some of the religious leaders, to hear sort of what he was saying. He told them, he reminded them them that they were to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because repentance involves a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. And repentance is born out in our subsequent actions. Oh, so I'm totally sorry for this. More often than not, my response in my head to that is, well, I guess we'll see. Because it's going to be borne out in a person's actions. And so both Gomer and the nation of Israel, they may have said, I want to return to my husband. I want to return to the Lord. I don't want to be involved in these things anymore. And all of the pain that they have brought my particular way. But they never actually did turn from those things. And so what does the Lord do? What's his determination? I'm going to save those people by any means necessary. Look at verse 10. And so now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. The Lord takes his hand of protection off of his bride, his wife, the nation of Israel. And that covering is just removed a little bit more, now causing her lewdness to be uncovered for all to see. And notice about the verse there in verse 10, her lovers who she had run to again and again, they can't do anything to stop it when the Lord removes his hand. Now, returning again to what this whole drama is meant to portray, when the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, when the Lord had begun to remove his hand of protection and the Assyrians began to come in and to attack the people of the northern kingdom, the the children of Israel ran to their foreign gods and they they had quick sacrifices and times of prayer and they cried out to their foreign gods, save us, protect us from these foreign invaders. And those foreign gods couldn't do a thing. They were silent, as it says in our verse here, and no one would rescue out of the hand of the Lord because the Lord had removed his hand of protection and no matter of crying to any false god was going to be able to save them in any way. For the Lord had determined that the next course of action that his people needed would be that he pull his hand of protection from them. That he fully, if you will, give them over to the consequences of their sin. And he he implements, I think we're on plan E. He implements plan E. Look at verse 11. I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her appointed feasts. He says, I'll put an end to those times of sacrifice and feast and so on and so forth. Now, those feasts and sacrifice, the Jewish people had feasts and sacrifices. They coincided with the new moon celebrations each month and things like that. And the Jewish people of the northern kingdom, they practiced those Jewish feasts on those Jewish days but they incorporated the worship of false gods during those particular Jewish feasts. And so we're still celebrating Christmas, but we're doing it to some other god. Can you, can you kind of picture that? 
And so that's what they were doing here. This is found in 1 Kings chapter 12. It says, Now after seeking the advice of the the king made two golden calves, and he said to the people, It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. One he put in Bethel, which was in uh, sort of kind of like the middle of today what is the nation of Israel. It would kind of be like where Trenton is in New Jersey. Bethel's down toward the bottom of the kingdom of the, the northern kingdom, and Dan was toward the top of the kingdom of the northern kingdom. And he put these two idols there, and he said, these are the gods that delivered you. This is where you should go to worship. And that's what the Jewish people did. And so they had this semblance of religious piety, but it was an abomination to the Lord. Remember that passage I read earlier about how they sacrificed their children to the fire? It was a semblance of Judaism, but it was an abomination unto the Lord. Isaiah tells us about it. He was a contemporary of Hosea. Isaiah said this in chapter 1, the Lord speaking through Isaiah. It says, bring me no more vain offerings. Just, Just stop, he says. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I am sick of it. My name sort of thrown in there with these golden calves and all this other junk you're doing. Just stop altogether, he says. Verse 12 continues in Hosea. It says, And I will lay waste her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I'll make them a forest, and then the beast of the field shall devour them. And I'll punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. When, this is just a historical thing, when the children of Israel was brought into captivity, other people were brought into the land, but not a lot. And so the land pretty much just remained sort of an empty land and the land just began to grow wild. And so then the wild animals, without people around, they just sort of took over the land. And that's what the verse essentially says there, where the beasts of the field shall devour them. And again, if you look at 13, he says, I'll punish them for their feast days of the Baals. When she worshiped and, and the burnt offerings and she adorned herself with, you know, the their little jewelry and all that kind of stuff as she went after their, their foreign lover. She forgot me, it says there. I told you this last time. The king at this time is Jeroboam II. And during the time of Jeroboam II, the nation was very, very prosperous economically. And they presumed if God was upset with us, he wouldn't be prospering us. So get away from me, Hosea. Get away from me, Isaiah. I don't want to hear what you have to say. But they they took that prosperity and they used it to worship and serve their foreign gods, to pursue their foreign pleasures. And so God's response then is, look, I tried to bless you. And you misused it. And so what's God going to do? He's going to remove those blessings. And he's going to do so. He says, your mirth, I looked up mirth. I forget what it means now, but it's like celebration or something like that. At the time I looked it up. I'm going to remove your feast and all of these things, your vines. That's like the luxury of the drink and so on. And your figs would be, I wouldn't eat them, but some people would be like, this is awesome, a fig or whatever. Not me. Alrighty, it would be something else, I would imagine. A cupcake. And you, wow, the cupcakes or whatever. And that they would carry cake, that they would be punished. Let me read you one more time from Second Kings. 
Because this describes the start of the Assyrians coming in. Verse 5 says, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, and he came to Samaria. Now Samaria is another name for Israel, for the northern kingdom. And for three years he besieged it. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah and on the Haber, I don't know, the river of Gozen, and in the city of the Medes. And so the Assyrians came in, they took the children captive and led them astray. And for the next 200 years, closer actually to 300 years, the northern kingdom would be removed from the land of Israel. And they had wanted to run after their foreign gods. And so the Lord now says, all right, I'm going to give you plan F. You want to run after your foreign gods, I'll give you your foreign gods. And I'll take you into a foreign land where on every single street corner, corner, there's worship to these foreign gods. It reminded me as I was reading it, when the Jews came out of Egypt and the Lord had provided for them miraculously manna. Now we don't know exactly what manna was, but apparently it was okay and it did the trick, but they got sick of it, the Jews. And they began to call God's provision, they began to call it this worthless food. We're so tired of this worthless food. We want a nice steak. We want some meat, they began to say. And we read this in Numbers 11. He says, you want some meat? I'm going to give you some meat. All right? Something like that. It says, you shall not eat, Numbers, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. The Lord's a little mad. He says, but a whole month you're going to eat meat until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. This is in the Bible. I remember my wife and I, when my kids were little, she wanted to teach the kids, as how, and me apparently, how many people in the world have to eat. And so for seven straight days, we had rice and beans. I don't like the way people around the world eat every single day. Rice and beans was coming out of our nostrils. All right, he says, you want, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat, you're sick of meat. And he says here in the Hosea passage, essentially, he says, look, you want foreign gods? I'll give you your foreign gods. And I'll send you to a foreign land where the foreign gods will be everywhere uh, you could possibly imagine. Interesting to note, I think I've said this before, when the children of Israel came back 300 years later, the perennial problem of them always going after foreign gods never surfaced again. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, for the next 2,000 years, they despise. One of the reasons why they don't like Christianity is because they've drawn the conclusion that we worship three gods because of the Trinity. And they don't understand it's one God and three persons. But clearly this religion, Christianity, is an abomination because you worship and serve many gods. And so they're so sick of idolatry. uh, They don't know the Lord necessarily, Jesus Christ, at this point. They will. But he says, you want your foreign gods, I'll give you your foreign gods. And we look at that and it, we might draw the conclusion, well, I guess the Lord had finally had it. Well, the reality is we're not going to get to it today, but not at all. Because this was just one more means by which he wanted to draw his people back to himself. And the Lord is not done. I said this last week to conclude. He's not done with the Jewish people. In the same way that Hosea was not done with his wife Gomer. And you recall, if you were with us, that the previous chapter ended. It ended the same place that this chapter actually began. So last week, we read these things. We, we saw that he 
that Gomer was unfaithful, and it concluded with these words, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. It ends with that place of restoration. Today, we started, it's a say to your brothers who previously were known as you're my, you are not my people, say to them you are my people. Say to your sister, or I get it backwards, but you, you're not mercy, say you will get mercy, you will receive mercy. And those children of Gomer who represent the nation will be restored. Through any means necessary, the Lord would accomplish his purposes and he would bring them to repentance. And this morning we considered sort of five of those attempted means. When we come together again next week, we're going to see the sort of the final step the Lord uses to accomplish his purposes. Now, if you're dying to know, then just read the end of the chapter. All right. And it it reveals it to you there. But I think we've learned a few things today, and I want to sort of summarize three things that I think we, we looked at today. Number one is the Lord loves us, and he desires the very best for us. Do you believe that? Good. That's great. Uh, if you don't, if you're not sure, it's true. And just ask the Lord, Lord, make that real in my life. Help me to know that truth. The Lord loves you, and he wants the very, very best for you in this life. Number two The Lord knows that sin prevents us from receiving that very best. The Lord knows it. Most of us, we come to realize it before long. But the Lord knows that. And from the very beginning, he's trying to drill that into our hearts and in our minds. And then the third thing that we considered today is the Lord in his grace and his mercy will by any means necessary bring us to the place of realizing that. And he'll look to teach us, but if that doesn't work, then he'll correct us. And if that doesn't work, then he'll put the hedges around us. And if that doesn't work, then he'll let us see the emptiness of our pursuits. And if that doesn't work, as we said, he'll allow sin to serve. But by whatever means necessary, in his mercy and in his wisdom, he brings us to the place that we rest in his care and we rest in his affections. And there's no reason for any of us in this room to come to understand that when we're 75, 80, 85, and we're coming to the end of our days. He would have us know it now. And so, friends, I would encourage you, I would encourage myself, let's walk in wisdom. Let's avoid the pain that our rebellion and our sin is inevitably going to cause. And in a fresh way, let's give ourselves to the only one who truly loves our soul which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be those that learn the lesson without having to go through the pain. Lord, to take you at your word, to trust you, that when you speak, that you know. Lord, that you have the uh, perspective of eternity, but even more so that you have the wisdom of eternity. And so give us hearts that are ready to receive from you Lord, and if we do go astray in the pain, Lord, I just pray that we would be a people that will stop the destructive paths that we're on sooner rather than later. Lord, for your glory and for our best. Thank you for this story today, this account. Lord, we thank you for Hosea's, uh, just the amazing grace he showed and his obedience, Lord, uh, to do as you led him to do so that we might sit here and learn these lessons from his life.
And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.